Hello and welcome back to Elmtown. It's a new year and it's time for a new episode. And I'm joined today by Martin Stewart, the creator of Circuit Breaker, a new game written in Elm. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge our sponsor, Culture Amp, and they are paying for my time in putting together this show for you. So shout out to Culture Amp. Thank you very much. And if you happen to be in this part of the world, which is, you know, Australia, New Zealand, that sort of territory, or if you'd like to come down here for a job, culturamp.com slash jobs is where you can read about the open roles that we have, including front-end engineering roles that uh, you will get to write Elm on the job. Uh, so, yeah, check us out if you're interested. Otherwise, buckle up for a great show. Oh, before we get into it, I need to make sure that we thank Xavier Ho, who, as usual, is editing this episode, making us sound great by trimming out the messy bits. All right, Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm, I'm very pleased to have you here, our first guest of 2020. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, so uh, I'm Martin. Uh, I work as a consultant in uh, Sweden. Oh, yes. uh, and I discovered Elm about almost two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and since then, it's, <laughs> it's taken over, we can say. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting to hear because, like, uh, you, you see um, from down here on the opposite side of the world, I look up there and I see things like Oslo Elm Day where all these, these uh, people who are mostly, as far as I can tell from chatting with different folks over the years, they're mostly people working for, um, for companies doing contract work in Elm. And so I, I have this impression that all of Scandinavia is this, this cottage industry of Elm consulting. Is that not the case in your experience? <laughs> Maybe I've, uh, I haven't found the right people yet. Uh, in my case, the previous client I was working with, uh, it was a, like, a lot of C-sharp and I, I, people were sort of dragging their heels. And, and finally, I was like, look, I, I'm getting tired of C-sharp, honestly. And uh -huh. at that point, they're like, OK, you, you can have this small little project. We'll let you do this little thing in Elm. Your dream would be that someone notices the amazing job you did on Circuit Breaker and goes, we need to hire that man to build us a thing in Elm. <laughs> I, I have already like, uh, shown it to people when uh, doing, like, up applying as a consultant. Yes. Um, so yes, <laughs> that has been part of the plan. I, I finished Circuit Breaker about a month ago now, so it's been about mm -hmm. it's been part of my portfolio for a month. So you discovered uh, Elm a couple of years ago. You said you've you've uh, been trying to phase it into your professional work, but I guess you've gotten into it in a pretty big way in in side project land. Um, how has that how has that gone? Like how big how quickly was the ramp up? Tell us about your journey with Elm so far. Yeah, so um, while I was working at this client that I mentioned then, um, at some point, my boss there said, uh, Martin, we like your work, but I think there's going to be a bit of like a dry spell during the summer. So we've got mm -hmm. this uh, other website we'd like to like put together. We, we haven't done anything on it yet, so you can be the one to do that. And while he's saying this, I'm like, oh, no, JavaScript, I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> but at some point, he mentioned, like, I get the greenfield that I get to pick the tech stack. I was like, hmm, <laughs> start thinking, like, what could I use other than JavaScript? So I yes, I remember a colleague from like a year ago had actually shown me Elm. And at the time, I was, you know, a bit skeptical. Um, he, he had given me like the no runtime exceptions uh, spiel. The first thing that popped into my mind was like, um, yeah, but what about Stack Overflows and uh, running out of memory and 
yes, he admitted that you can still get runtime exceptions that way. And I was like, aha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I still remembered it. Uh, and so I started looking into it, and I uh, followed the tutorial on uh, uh, the official Outlang website. And I, I discovered I had one or two colleagues at uh, the consultancy also who were who, um, had used Elm in their free time. So I, I like asked them for help as well. And I guess from there, it just it clicked with me. Like, I really right. just, I enjoyed it from the start. Reading between the lines of your story so far, where you had been doing a fair bit of C-sharp work, I'm, would I be right in understanding that you, you, were not, um, you were not an experienced front-end engineer, that you had mostly been doing back-end work up until that point, and that the, oh, the dreaded JavaScript was um, part of what came with the territory of switching to the front-end? It depends what you mean by front end, because um, when people say back end, you think servers, and when you say front end, you think websites. But I was working on like desktop applications, so is that front end? Uh, right. I guess I'm thinking <laughs> UI code versus the, the 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 data processing stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. So I, I was working with WPF, so Windows Presentation Foundation. Before I discovered Elm, I was happy to work with C Sharp, but I was yep. never happy to work with WPF. <laughs> right. That was not my thing. And uh, I, I should mm-hmm. mention that, so I can quit saying the consultancy. I work at a company called Treton 30 or uh, 1337 in English. Okay. So at Treton 30 we had uh, like an apprenticeship program, and I learned a bit about React and Redux and JavaScript. Um, and I, I did not like JavaScript there, but like the React Redux thing stuck with me. I really liked the concept. Uh, and so while working with Elm, I, I quite quickly realized that, yeah, it's doing the same thing here. It has like, you know, one global state and you use messages and you have a single view function and all that. Um, and so I really like that, uh, especially because in WPF, when you have like your model change, you are responsible for telling the UI that, hey, you need update now with this value. Right. You have your yep, on yep. property changed function that you have to use everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like effectively you've doubled the amount of code you have to write and you're going to forget places and then you spend uh, 30 minutes to multiple hours figuring out why isn't this button updating this piece of UI. Yeah. It sounds very familiar to the front end code I, I wrote before. Uh, before React came along uh, in frameworks like Backbone and Marionette, uh, which is a convenience layer built on top of Backbone. But it was also very two-way data bindy. And anytime something happened that you considered significant as the developer, you had to remind the framework to update everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very similar. Yeah. Um, but moving forward a little then, so I, I think when using Elm, I, I, I started with the generic stuff like the tutorial and then a uh, to-do list app. I was learning Elm. I wanted to get that ready uh, before this project started ramping up so that I could try using that. Um, unfortunately, at some point, uh, more people got involved in the project. And at that point, I lost uh, decision-making control <laughs> over which tech stack to use. <laughs> um, they, they understood at that point I wanted to use Elm and everyone was looking at me kind of funny, like, what's this new thing? Uh, yeah. And they actually, to their credit, they asked me to give a presentation on it to like sell them on why to use Elm. Simultaneously, while all this was going on, I had started on uh, uh, like my own personal project. Um, I wanted to remake uh, 
a, a old game I had played called Lego Loco, which was sort mm. of like this toy box game where you could place little Lego houses on a 2D grid and you could place little yep. railroads and roads and there was it was like SimCity but with even less objectives <laughs> even less simulation <laughs> but it was fun to watch little trains move yeah. around so I wanted to remake that where had you experienced that game before was that like a an officially licensed Lego game yeah this was a official Lego game from like right. uh, 20 years ago or something Lego Loco originally, the original Lego licensed game was single player. Or it was multiplayer. There was like a LAN version, but never mm -hmm. mind that. Point being is it was essentially single player. You could place buildings on this 2D grid. Um, but I wanted to make it multiplayer and have an infinite grid instead. The the original game, like your 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 grid was limited to your screen size. And so I wanted to make like an infinite version of this game and you know, I wanted it to be uh, multiplayer, like collaborative, everyone place buildings and railroads on the same 2D grid. Um, so I needed a server, which since I was familiar with C-sharp, I wrote it in C-sharp then. The problem with that was the server also had to run the same game logic so that you could make sure the client wasn't uh, cheating, like making up what happened. The server had to also run yeah, the same right. events and tell the clients. So you had to write the, the game twice. Yeah, and so I'm writing the same game twice, once in Elm, once in C-sharp, and <laughs> C-sharp's not exactly a functional language, so there's a bit of like a clash going on here. Yeah. Um, and so I'd say that was the real killer in all of this, was that I had to write, like I had to duplicate effort, and I had to duplicate effort in a really awkward way that made it, like there was plenty of inconsistency bugs, like the... Right. I had this railroad and a train moving on the railroad and like on the server it would do one thing and on the Elm side it would do another thing. I've heard a lot of reasons for wanting Elm on the server side before, but duplicating the game logic for, for you know, a server to enforce um, is not one I've heard before. It's a really interesting one to think about. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> me with like in my own world where all, all Elm matters for is making games that's that'd yeah. be a huge one, yeah. It's being able to <laughs> run Elm on the server so I can run the, the game logic there. But So I presented what I had working uh, as, as part of my presentation on Elm to, to my colleagues then at uh, the client. Um, wow. Unfortunately, I don't think I managed to sell it. Um, and so <laughs> nothing came of that ultimately. I think they, they went... Went ahead with the project, but uh, I was not put on the team, and I think they used Angular instead or something. Um, and so I was continuing with hobby projects. Uh, I, I scrapped the Lego Loco game then. Uh, I think because it was like the first project I had ever worked on, first major project that I ever worked on in Elm. It was yeah, it <laughs> it had problems. So. What sort of, are we talking technical problems or did it just get to the point where you're like, this isn't turning into the, a, a game I want. Uh, I'd rather work on something I want. I mean, I guess first and foremost, it's just um, the standard new ideas pop into one's head. Uh, yes. That they, like the new shiny. And so then mm -hmm. you start losing interest in what you're working on. But there were other things. Uh, for example, I just... You know, I wasn't familiar with Elm, so I wrote Elm in a way that I wouldn't now. For example, right. I was, like, allergic to using case statements. Like, if I had a maybe, I'm like, <laughs> I can do maybe.map on this. And then yes, <laughs> just maybe that, and then, and then, instead of just using a case of, which now I think it's so much easier to understand. 
Yeah, I think, you know, just out of habit, every other programming language that has a select or a case statement in it, it kind of goes, yeah, we have this, but you probably don't want to use it. And, and I guess I just brought that prejudice with me into Elm. And the first time I saw the case statement, I was just like, okay, move along. I'm obviously not going to use this because I never <laughs> use this in any other language I use. Yeah. Uh, but I think the first time someone showed me the completeness error where it said this select statement uh, or this case statement handles four out of the five possible variations. You need to add another branch for this. I was like, oh, okay. This is, this is a serious feature. It's there for a reason. Uh, I better change my opinions. It looks so nice when you can have like a long line of like uh, chaining together funct functions with pipelines. Yes. So I wanted it's to It's satisfying. Like, I didn't want to break it up with a case of. I wanted to just keep it as a long row of, of pipelines. Yes. So I was using maybe yeah, that map yeah. a lot. But when you start doing that a lot, you can like, it, it makes it harder to tell what type you're currently using. Yeah, is it is it the nothing that you're dealing with? Is it a nothing from up the chain, or is it a nothing from the last step of the the? Yeah, the and like, is this a is this a maybe of this kind of record, or is this a maybe of something yeah. else? I've, I kind of lost yeah, track yeah. at this point. Um, mm -hmm. And and also at the time, I think I was using the uh, the Elm plugin for Atom, which. Uh, I currently use um, uh, IntelliJ's Elm plugin, which lets you do type yes. inference. So uh -huh. you can actually like, you can do some kind of hotkey binding. It'll tell you the type of this value right here in the function is this. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, but that was a bit of a tangent. <laughs> That's, um, so my point is just, uh, I was writing code in a way that um, we'll say it was not optimal. It wasn't terrible, but you know, it was beginner code. Yeah. But faced with the option of refactoring this whole game that you were partway through building and starting from a blank slate with the experience you had amassed, you found the blank slate more inspiring? Yeah, I had other ideas. So I wanted to try other things. When we get to Circuit Breaker, I'm really interested in hearing how that balance was, uh, evolved through the course of the project. Yeah. Um, so to put a timeline here, I think I started, like I first started with Elm. Um, uh, okay, so it's 2020 now. It was like April 2018, I guess. All right, so that's when you started building things with Elm. I started working, uh, in, in the fall, I started working on a visual novel game with some friends. We basically mm -hmm. took uh, our D&D &D characters, uh, though it wasn't actually D&D, &D, and we wanted to make like a little adventure for them. Um, and so one of my friends did the writing, I did the programming, obviously. Uh, my sister did the drawing. Um, right. But around that time... Were you reproducing the story of a, of a gaming session that had actually happened? Uh, no, I think we were going more abstractly. Like, this was okay. like an alternate universe where just all our characters happened to exist. And <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I, I, don't, I don't remember more than that from the story. Around this time, L19 got released then. And we had, we had planned this game as sort of like a Christmas present for our, like, our little friend group. Um, and we oh, realized cool. at this point, or I realized at this point, yeah, this is going, this is not going to pan out. So <laughs> finally now we reach uh, around Christmas and I'm thinking, you know, it's kind of fun making like little games that they become like presents, I guess, to some, for like someone's birthday or Christmas present or something. It's not often you get video games as a, a gift, as a present. Let alone original video games. Exactly. Bespoke. Oh yeah, I, I, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's not too unusual to like get a store-bought video game as a present. Yeah, That's not yeah, too yeah. unusual. I got you a video game, but wait, 
This is the only copy. (laughs) Yeah. This is where Circuit Breaker comes in. I had not thought of the name Circuit Breaker at the time, but the game was inspired by going back to these uh, D&D-like role-play games we had done. Uh, There was one that was like sort of set in a uh, futuristic setting, and it had like basically a hacking minigame. And the hacking minigame consisted of uh, my sister like getting a picture of a circuit board, like mm-hmm. just covered in wires and chips, and then like placing a little token on part of the chip and saying like, this is where you are, this is where the enemies are, and you gotta move along the wires to avoid them. Uh, the gameplay was not as fast paced because this was like, <laughs> you know, done by hand. <laughs> um, yes. But the idea stuck with me. Well, okay, now we need to go back in time a little. Uh, maybe three years uh-huh. ago, uh, using, not Elm, but uh, using Game Maker, I had wrote right. a basically like a prototype version of what would become Circuit Breaker for a game jam. So this was made over a three-day period for a uh, the Game Maker community jam. Um, but so I had finished that, and I thought, yeah, this is cool. Uh, I kind of like the idea. It, like, it needs work, obviously, because it was made in three days. Um, but at the time, you know, I was... When, when you work 72 hours at once, burnout sets in immediately. So I had no interest in continuing mm-hmm. it. And Game Maker, I feel, is really bad at making larger projects. It's great for prototyping, but it's not good for larger things. Right. Uh, so I, I shelved that. But now I'd come back in December of uh, yeah, 2018, December 2018. I decided, yeah, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to try iterating on that. I see if I can make something for my sister's birthday because... If this was just a generic game that had, like, nothing to do with her, it might feel a little weird. But this definitely, like, this was inspired by her, like, D&D campaign. So, yeah, this this could be a cool present. For the listeners who, you know, they might be sitting on a bus, they haven't had a chance to see Circuit Breaker themselves yet. We could, like, describe in, in broad strokes what the game looks like and does. For myself, I've played a, a half hour or so of it. I've I've completed the top row of the levels, uh, okay. and um, and the way I would describe it is that you, as a player, are controlling a a pulse of electricity on a wire on a circuit board, and you're zooming along it. And often these wires occur in tracks where there are a bunch of parallel wires, and you can jump left or right across these parallel wires. And eventually, these tracks of wires lead into a a square computer chip. And your job is to uh, move around that chip in time with the music in order to control at least half of it, at which point you've hacked it. And then you take the next circuit line out of that chip in search of the next chip to hack. And once you've hacked all of the chips on the level, you win the level. But your efforts are frustrated by all of these other pulses of electricity that are racing along the same tracks. And anytime you touch one, you lose some health and eventually die. Um, and, uh, and, and that's the game. And I have to say, as someone who's played it a bit, it, it feels a bit like uh, uh, one of those car racing games where the cars are on tracks, except that oncoming traffic could at any moment come through the the car that is you are following <laughs> if that makes sense you could be you could be <laughs> yeah, driving the, behind a car and then suddenly oncoming traffic passes through that car and hits you square on that's what that's the way i keep dying in yes the traffic theory. is immaterial so <laughs> that's an additional <laughs> challenge did i do a pretty good job of describing it yeah i'd say so 
So how much of that existed in the original game maker hacking minigame prototype you'd done and how much evolved over the course of the development of Circuit Breaker? If you were to use that description, it would closely line up with a few exceptions. The biggest one is that in Circuit Breaker, when you're on a chip, uh, you have to move, like get the time, your movements to the music. In the original yep. version, there was no grid you were fixed to and there was no timing. So you could move anywhere. It was just... Uh, you had your four arrow keys and you can move around. And I took that out because the, like, the winning strategy was to just hide in the corner. Because when, <laughs> when like, the, the white electrons reach the chip, they just zip across it. And if you're in the corner, there's nothing that's going to hit you. Another difference, the original version was called Hackman. Uh, that's a pun on Pac-Man. Entirely because yes. you are a yellow electron. And when you died, the Pac-Man noise would play. The, the Pac-Man game ah. over noise. Oh, uh, I noticed because your health is represented by your game sprite, which is a <laughs> exactly like, that's a little detail I love is rather than have a health bar somewhere on the screen, your character itself is its own health bar. But it, it yeah, it, you start as a circle and then as you take damage, segments of that circle disappear and it looks a little like Pac-Man. Yeah, uh, and, and that was a necessity because you're staring so closely at your little character on the screen because you don't want to get hit by anything. So yeah. if you have to look to the side to see your health, <laughs> you're going to get hit again. I noticed the the Git repo for Circuit Breaker is still called Hackman, so. Exactly. So in December, I started working on that. Um, I think the game almost immediately started not with the actual gameplay, but with working on the level editor. Because ah, I already knew yes. what the game would feel like, essentially. I just peeked my nose into the level editor while I was playing with the game earlier, and it's it, it's quite a fully realized sort of environment at a glance anyway. It's got like button bars across the top and sides of the screen. It's got this, this grid in the middle. It, it feels like a whole separate application that you had to build apart from the app. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's its own sort of view rendering architecture as well. It feels like a pretty big job. Um, particularly since the game proper has only 16 levels in it now. From the beginning, I think I had in mind that, yeah, I'm going to need to put a lot of work in this, into this. <laughs> so it would be nice if it could just be used by other people too, so that like yep. the, the effort has a bit more replay value. Keep in mind, like it took me a year to finish the whole thing, but I had this first deadline coming up, which is, hey, I need to finish this for my sister's birthday. Otherwise, uh, right. I don't have any presents at all. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, what happened next? I, I think it might have been January that, unrelated to this, a colleague at work asked me, hey, we have a, uh, a, a JS meetup coming up. Uh, I think it's called JS Stockholm. And there's going to be uh -huh. a bunch of people there. And, you know, you're really into this Elm thing, which, as I understand it, compiles to JavaScript. So it's basically JavaScript, right? Yeah, I might be a little bit uncharitable towards him there. But anyway, I got invited to this uh, to present at this meetup. So at this point, the game didn't have the nice 3D graphics. Um, instead, I was using SVG. I think SVG is really good if you want like static things. So mm -hmm. like map of all of Europe, no problem. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. But when things are moving, and I even noticed that when things are rotating, at least in like a few browsers, things really slow down. Like, right. like, even if I have a static, you know, circuit diagram that I've made, 
uh, like all the wires are SVG lines and the chips are rectangles and SVG. Even if that's mm-hmm. like a single static thing and I have a transform on it, it's still lagged when I rotated it. Yep. So, yeah, <laughs> this was a non-starter. Um, fortunately I for think the we've demo... we've spoken to a, another uh, game developer on this show before who went through a similar um, initial prototype in SVG and then had to rewrite the entire view layer of their game in WebGL. Yeah, <laughs> that's my story too. Um, but... <laughs> For this uh, presentation, that wasn't such a big issue because I'm the one playing uh-huh. it. <laughs> no one else gets to touch it right now. Um, and so I just made okay. a level that looked as impressive as possible with as few electrons and moving elements as possible. For this presentation, I also, like, I wanted to sell Elm to this crowd, not just show my game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this crowd, many of them have never heard of Elm before. So I want to explain, you know, the, a bit of the fundamentals. And I actually had, like, 45 minutes to get this presentation. So, you know, I I needed a bit more content than just my game. Um, So I made PowerPoint slides, but instead of PowerPoint, I used Elm. So all my slides (laughs) were, you know, like just bullet points of text in HTML rendered by Elm. And then my game was just a slide in this presentation then. You know, I just wired Uh up everything because when everything's pure and there's no side effects, yeah, you can do that. So my game was a nested component of this PowerPoint presentation. I'm just keeping count of the number of, um, number of uh, scope creeps that have happened in this. In this. <laughs> like, oh yeah. You wanted to give your sister a present, so you made a video game, that's scope creep. Uh, then uh, you made your own level editor for that video game. And then you made your own presentation framework to sell Elm by demoing this game. <laughs> yes, well, tip of the iceberg, I'll get to more later. Um, okay. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so just for flair, on top of having my game inside a presentation, my presentation was started by the title screen of my game. So uh-huh. I had like, in the the very early version of Circuit Breaker, I had like start, or I think it might have been level select, I had a level editor button, and then I quickly threw in a presentation button. And when you click that, start of the PowerPoint, then when you got to a certain slide in this uh, Elm PowerPoint and hit enter, the slide would explode away, like we're making a little explosion noise, and the the <laughs> the white frame would fall off, exposing the game. Um, and from there, I, then I would play the game, and then after I beat the game, I would advance to the next slide. Um, I'm chuckling at the amount of work that must be involved in that, but at the same time, I go to a lot of meetups, and I know that is a demo that would have brought the house down. There was actually three people in the crowd who ran uh, a Elm meetup. Uh, I think it was called Elm Stockholm. We actually have a Mm -hmm. channel for it uh, on Elm Slack in uh, Sweden channel, I think. Um, So they thought it was also cool, and they invited me to talk about it at their Elm Slack. So I realized immediately at that point that, yeah, this SVG part has to go. Or rather, for the gameplay bits, I kept it for the level editor because the level editor doesn't need to do... Like, everything's essentially static except when you're placing stuff. So tell me about... WebGL because I've been I've been working in Elm for a few years now. I still haven't gone anywhere near WebGL. It sounds kind of awesome if what I was trying to do was build a game, but if I was halfway through building a game and I was faced with ah, I'm going to have to stop and learn WebGL now before I can make any more progress, that would feel like a huge speed bump to me. Was it that or was it relatively easy to learn? I had the advantage of in the past I had tried writing a uh I had tried writing a game engine in C-sharp, okay. and so that was uh, 
um, written in OpenGL then. But WebGL mm -hmm. is essentially just a subset of OpenGL. And so, th so they were very similar conceptually. You're, you're writing the mm -hmm. same shaders, basically. Um, uh, to clarify, shaders are like specialized code you give to the GPU that tells it how to turn uh, triangles into something on the screen. And but Elm so, has its its own special syntax for defining shaders right in line in Elm code. Is that right? Exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> that actually blows my mind. It's like, so I know. Evan decides like, you know, uh, tuples, if you have a tuple with four more elements, we should cut that back. And I think fairly so. Like uh, code gets ugly when you have tuples that are really large. But yeah. <laughs> at the same time, then we also have this specialized built-in web uh, GLSL shader language yeah. that we can use. It's <laughs> and amazing. I mean, the first time I see it, I go, hang on. What is, this is not Elm, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, this is core Elm. It's, it's available in every single instance of the compiler out there. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Like, it sounds like I'm like calling Evan out on being inconsistent, but I love it. It's so useful. It's a, yeah, it's a deliberate focus of the language that I guess just people who are building web apps and not games, they, they don't come across that part of the language. And I guess at a certain point, it seems like Evan and the team uh, working on Elm said, okay, we are going to market this chiefly as a web application language. And so at that point, the WebGL syntax and its features maybe receded into the background of the the introductory tutorials and the marketing material for the language, but it clearly remains like a a valued core feature of the language. I, now I forget their name. I don't think it's Evan that's maintaining the the actual WebGL package either. If you're listening to this, please reach out. It'd be great to have you on the show. WebGL uh, Elm Explorations WebGL is it's really easy to learn. Even if I had not known OpenGL. It like there is a lot of stumbling points when you're trying to set up the entire like rendering pipeline in OpenGL or WebGL, and Elm uh -huh. WebGL does like a fantastic job of just really simplifying that. I mean, especially because you get type safety when you're writing these shaders. Elm can check that yeah. the Elm data being put into them is like it doesn't match up or not, and so yeah. that's really useful. Um, in, in addition to this, it's like you know just. Elm, live, Elm packages in general are, you know, stable, easy to learn, well-documented, and all that goes a long way to getting up and running with WebGL. Mm. Um, but there are some drawbacks to the Elm WebGL version. Um, it doesn't, it's not like, it can't do everything WebGL can do. And when you're right. just like trying to get a cube on the screen, that's like of no consequence. But the, the biggest issue I ran into was that Elm WebGL I'm just going to say WebGL from now on and just, I'm talking sure. about the Elm package, not the, the browser implementation of WebGL. Um, yep. WebGL, it, it, you don't have a way to tell it that um, you, you are finished. Like if you've created a mesh, if you've created a collection of triangles that you want to render, you have no way of telling it that, hey, I'm done with this now. Can you let me garbage collect it? Um, uh -huh. So you basically have a memory leak going on if you constantly create new meshes. Uh -huh. Um, originally that was like, it, it literally was a memory leak. Uh, there was a, I, I posted a GitHub issue about this and the, like the compromise was to, um, if the, if the actual like underlying Elm data is garbage collected by like the JavaScript runtime, then the, yeah. 
WebGL mesh, uh, the, the browser's WebGL mesh gets also garbage collected. But mm -hmm. this isn't, this doesn't completely fix the issue because the Elm runtime, its garbage collection doesn't know anything about GPU memory. So it has no idea if you're about to run out of GPU memory and crash your uh, instance of, the, the, right. of, your, of your web page. It, it, essentially, if you need to create a mesh at runtime, you store yeah. it in your model and then reuse it. If you know what the mesh looks like at compile time, then you just assign it to a variable or you know, a function with no parameters. And then the run, yeah. then uh, Elm will create that on application start. And if you need a mesh that can change in some way, so like, for example, electrons uh, in the game, they can, you know, move around. So instead mm -hmm. of creating a mesh with a new position on every uh, frame, on every animation frame, I instead have a single mesh and I can pass in what are called uniforms. They're basically like global variables for mm. the shader. And I can use those to tell this mesh, hey, uh, you need to be like shifted by this amount on this frame. Right. So are all the electrons in the game instances of the same mesh just shifted around in different places? Correct, yeah. And I have another right. uniform that changes their color. I have another one that changes their size so that the little uh, particle trail coming out from behind the, uh, the electrons, it's a little subtle, but um, that's basically just more electrons that are, <laughs> their, their size is scaled. Right. So architecturally, you got to think of these meshes as assets that will effectively be loaded into memory and cannot be reliably unloaded. And so the, the weight of the number of meshes in your application is the in-memory weight of your, your application. And you got to make sure that fits inside of the GPU. Exactly. Within reason. And admittedly, um, you know, GPUs are pretty powerful nowadays, might have like multiple gigabytes of memory. So that I have these meshes that are relatively small by like modern game standards. Uh, I don't think they pose that much issue in like taking up all the GPU memory, but I want to play it on the safe side because if I do yeah. run out of memory, that's probably the most annoying bug to debug ever. And like, yeah. <laughs> because I'm relying on the J the JavaScript garbage collector to garbage collect meshes. So right. it's going to be completely random when this would occur. So I just like, I did not yeah. want to risk this at all even if it was unlikely. You're right. So it sounds like, you know, it's on the level of, you can probably afford one mesh per entity in, in your game. It just can't be one mesh per frame of animation of your game. Um, not quite. Uh, no. You are correct that, yeah, I cannot afford one mesh per animation frame. But yeah. actually, I can't afford one mesh per instance either. The issue is... Um, with GPUs, it's expensive to give them many drawing calls. So essentially, every time you draw a mesh, that's one draw call. Or right. it's, it, it's several, but conceptually, it's one draw call. Um, uh -huh. And GPUs are incredibly fast at taking large amounts of data plus a couple of draw calls and doing something with it. But they're really, right. really slow at going the other way, like many draw calls with a little bit of data for each. Uh -huh. And so... It actually would not work uh, if, if I drew each individual electron like as its own separate mesh. It's not even entirely because of limitations of Elm WebGL. The actual WebGL browser, browser standard doesn't let you have arrays that aren't known at compile time. <laughs> and that's like the world's biggest, most annoying limitation. Yeah, so wow. basically what I, was, what I had to resort to was in my shader, 
instead of having an array with like you know uh, a you know a uniform that gives me offsets for each uh, electron. Instead, what I have is copy pasted twenty offsets, each assigned to its own like uh, field. So I have offset uh -huh. zero, offset one, offset two, all the way to twenty or something. Uh -huh. uh, and so, if I have more than twenty electrons, then I need to make another drawing call with the uh -huh. next twenty, and then the next twenty. Um, right. And then the and mesh you balanced the, it to this number of uh, this seemingly arbitrary number of tw uh, here's a batch of twenty things to draw. Yeah. And and yeah. twenty was arbitrary. I've seen other people use thirty-two. Um, right. <laughs> twenty was fast enough for me, so I didn't touch it. Okay. <laughs> but uh, so, so then the, the 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 actual mesh that represents the electron, um, instead of having a single mesh, what I have is a mesh that's really twenty meshes layered on mm -hmm. top of each other, and each mm -hmm. vertice has an ID associated with it. So that like the first copy has ID zero and the next one has ID one, ID two, up to twenty. Yeah. And so then each offset figures out like because the shader will work on each vertice individually, it doesn't know about the other ver other vertices. Mm -hmm. So it just checks that vertice. What's your ID? And it's like, oh, your ID five. Okay, let me get offset five and offset you, offset you by that much. Or oh, we we only have ten electrons left this time. So uh, your your ID eleven. Let's offset you by a million. You know, just yeah, throw you right. off the screen. We don't want to show you. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to do hacks like that to make it work. And you know, yes. in the end, it did work, but it felt very much like a hack. And there was a lot of copy pasting going on because you know I have other shaders, and if they need the same kind of drawing many, many things at once deal. I have to copy paste the whole shader over with a couple small changes. So I, I essentially have a shader file that's like a thousand, two thousand lines long of just this. Yes. You know, I, I've never worked in the game industry, but the, the little articles here and there that I've read about it tell me that this is very much par for the course for code written in the game industry. I mean, no <laughs> offense exactly to anyone, <laughs> any professional game developers listening, but I hear there's a lot of hacking going on because usually the project doesn't have to survive far past the release of the, the particular game you're building. Yeah, there, there's a lot of hackery going on. And um, I'll admit, I've, like, I've like, semi-professionally worked on a single game before. Uh, oh, wow. Other than that, I have very little experience with the game industry. But yes, from that single game that I worked on, it was hacks all the way. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yes, it was a mess. Um, and by those standards, Elm is like nice and tidy. Even with this WebGL like hackery, it's still leagues better than that. So you wrestled WebGL and Elm's particular limitations for it uh, to the ground and... I assume, got a much better performing game? Yeah. Um, it, it definitely was like a night and day difference from SVG. Um, suddenly, I, I was going from like, ooh, can I fit 11 electrons on the screen to like, ooh, I can fit like 100 uh, wow. or even more than that. Uh, later on, I started running, in running into performance issues again um, that I, weren't, I was never quite able to resolve but I could get around like a hundred electrons on the screen before the frame rate started suffering. Yeah. Um, cool. And around this point, uh, this is like okay, <laughs> time's up. Sister's birthday, uh, and I actually finished something. I had something finished in time. Uh, this version of my game, um, because it was based 
like you know it was inspired by this like D hacking mini game i had like this little conversation before each mission um in between like two or three of the characters from this rp no excuse me yep. uh from this role-playing game um and so that was the game that I presented to her, and yeah, she loved it. It, she loved <laughs> looking it? back, it was really like janky, and glitchy, and there was a <laughs> lot of stuff missing. But you know, but it was made with love. It was made with love, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's not always you get a game custom made for your birthday, so uh, it worked that's out. That's amazing. Uh, and one uh, major thing that happened was, so I mentioned this client that I'd worked for, and at some point around this time, I said, uh, okay, enough's enough. I can't stand another minute of WPF, and I'm even starting to get sick of C Sharp. <laughs> I need to find a new client. Um, and to Tethan uh, credit, they said, yeah, fair enough. Uh, we'll take you off that client. We'll find something new with potentially Elm. Um, I, I I was willing to work with like F Sharp too. So mm, yeah, sure. or, or you know, there's other functional languages out there. I can't just do Elm. Um, but so I was I'm between clients then, um, and also to their credit, they said, and you can work on whatever you want while we're looking for a new client. I'm like, well, I know uh-huh. what I'm working on then. <laughs> <laughs> so I started working on uh, my game. I started working on Circuit Breaker essentially in a full time capacity. So in addition to having way more time to spend on it, I find also that when I'm like in work mode at my job, I'm a mm-hmm. lot more motivated as well. So yeah. basically at this point, things really took off. I've chosen colors for the game, like the yeah. character should be yellow and the, the, the passive electrons, the ones that don't chase you, they should be white. I chose these colors when I made Hackman. So these are yeah. <laughs> colors decided upon like three, four years ago at this point. And I was like, you know, maybe I can do better. And you know what I can also do better? I can make a little color palette selector in the game so that other people can also pick colors and then uh-huh. generate a URL from them so that they can link them to friends. I haven't tried it yet, but I did play the the um, the Elm Tangrams inspired uh, color scheme that you linked okay. to from yeah. the Elm Discourse. It looked pretty good, I have to say. Uh, okay. Those colors go well together. Uh, what I'm dying to try, I don't know if I have all of the variables available to do it, uh, but I want to make like a dark mode version that looks really uh, cyberpunky with a with a dark dark background and uh, the the playable elements kind of light against dark rather than the other way around. Yeah, go right ahead. I'd love to see it. I should mention that. So yeah, Elm is deterministic um, unless you get random stuff from the uh, runtime, but. Um, one small gotcha to that, uh, which floating point numbers, um, they're not technically deterministic. What I mean by that is uh, different chip, like not not uh, not circuit breaker chips, but like your actual chip on your computer yeah. have slightly different implementations or potentially slightly different implementations of floating point. Right. Um, so the rounding errors on various operations can be slightly different. Ah. Um, and so this was like, at a theoretical level, it was a concern for me because potentially I could replay something on someone else's computer and it would desync. Right. In practice, I've never seen this become an issue. So I don't know if it's just modern CPUs have converged enough that they basically all do the same thing or if they are diverging, but it's slowly enough that you won't notice over a two minute gameplay replay. Uh, Had you known sure. that going in, would you have architected for integers for all the values, or is that not practical for the sort of stuff you're doing in the code? No, I, I would have done the same thing. I just, <laughs> it, it would have been too impractical. I, hmm. one thing I had considered um, was 
what if I wrote, like, what if I modified the compiler so that every generated floating point operation, like even the addition operator, was replaced yeah. with a function that called to a library that did software implemented floating point? <laughs> that was a thought. But now, my, not only do you have your own level editor, you have your own implementation <laughs> of floating point to deal with. Yes, my own, my own compiler as well, you know, just for the game. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I never, I never ran into an issue with this. When I realized that the, the instructions for the game were, were spelled out in, um, in circ the same circuit diagrams that, are, that form the game board or the game map, um, I think... I was like, wow, that is super clever. And then in the next thought, I thought, actually, that was probably easier than building a whole way to display tutorials on top of the game. Is that how that You are happened? exactly right. <laughs> 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 yes. Well, th th there's a little more nuance than that. Originally, so before this tutorial, I did have a earlier tutorial I created. And it actually had like a dialog box that appeared. And it had some stupid text in it like, uh, warning, the tutorial virus has hacked your computer, commencing yes. tutorial. Yes. And then it, it would explain the controls. And, well, for starters, it didn't look great. Like, i just thrown this together. But on top of that, um, drawing, uh, like, drawing ordinary HTML stuff on top of an SVG canvas, especially ah. if it's transparent, that's expensive, actually. Okay. And so I wanted to avoid, especially animated stuff, I wanted to avoid doing that a lot. You said um, an SVG canvas, but did you mean a WebGL canvas? Yes, WebGL canvas. There's a bit of a performance hit. Uh -huh. uh, I think like the layout phase, when your browser's like figuring out where everything sits, it's, it, like, it gets more expensive if you have uh, HTML stuff on top of your WebGL canvas. Got it. And so uh, I wanted to avoid that. Uh, and the tutorial itself was kind of, well, for starters, it, I wrote the tutorial early on. And so it was like no longer really lining up with the gameplay. Mm. Okay. I hadn't modified the gameplay that much, but I was like, I had some people play test the game and I was realizing like, oh, I need to, I really need to put more emphasis on like, how do you move around on a chip? And yeah. you need to like move, like time yourself to the beats and all that sort of stuff. Because that was by far the, like the biggest stumbling points people had was like the chip movement, like moving on the wires. People understood that immediately. I was missing a lot of the instructions as as I played the the tutorial level. The the move left, the move right. I got that, and then the instruction to uh, to uh, press forward to go faster. That's the one I missed. And what was going on in my head at that point was I was really focused on. Uh, what is going to be the next part of the track that I need to respond to? Because I still thought at that point the, the point of the game was staying on the track. I thought there is a risk that if I stay on one of oh, the parts that okay. ends, I will die. And I thought I was playing a racing game where the game was to stay on the track. Uh, and so I was fixated on the lines and, and was not <laughs> reading the words going by. Only later did I figure out that when you get to the end of a line, it helpfully jumps you to a spot that you can keep going. Uh, and the point is to avoid those sparks that are moving around on the lines. Uh, and at that point, when I replayed the tutorial, I was like, oh, look, all the instructions I need are right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's some fantastic feedback. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Um, and not knowing you can go faster, that 
does make the game a bit harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially when there's yeah, when there's someone faster behind you. Uh, yeah, exactly. Catching up. Yeah. That's probably not too difficult to change either. I just need to make a chunk of the track that forces you to jump like at the end of a ah, wire. Yes, yes. To like make it clear that that's gonna happen. That's not an issue. Two things I noticed. First of all, in the in the gameplay demo video that you posted on the Elm Discourse with your announcement, you said it was a it was not quite up to date with the current version of the game. But one of the things I noticed in it is very briefly an overlay map of the level uh, appears and then disappears. Is that a feature of the final game? Because I would really love to glance at the map if I if I could, but I, I couldn't figure out what the key sequence was. Yes, that's a shortcoming of the tutorial is that it does not explain how to use the map. Ah. I couldn't really think of a good place to put it in. And I thought, well, people might discover it and that's good, but they don't. That's that's not going to make the game unplayable. No, no, it's very playable. To answer your question, it's the space bar. Hold the space oh. bar, a mini map will appear. Excellent. So there you go. And to all you people listening, there you go. <laughs> Hot tip. It was worth it. You've, you've got the secret skills for Circuit Breaker. Um, the the other thing I noticed is that when you unlock levels, the little um, the little animation that explodes the glass that's covering the 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 new levels breaks in the Elm Tangram shape. Are there any other like Easter eggs or things that people might not notice on first playing of the game that you're especially proud of? Um, that was the big one. Yeah, yeah. That the, the the Tangram unlock sequence. Well, I um, didn't see it until like my fourth or fifth time unlocking a level in the game so it's it's just hidden enough i think okay cool <laughs> um other than that if you go to the settings page i, I don't know if you even call them easter eggs but like i have a trailer there it's mostly a joke um ah. i have like you know the original hackman you can download those are like things i've included and i've not heard many people mention them so <laughs> maybe they're better hidden than I expected because no one checks the settings or they are so cringy no one wants to mention them. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a fair bit about the technical implementation so I'm, I'm happy for the answer to be no here but I'm wondering are there any interesting parts of the code that you'd encourage people to go and look at that, that, that you know were either non-obvious as you worked them out or that you think are particularly worthy of scrutiny? I guess one thing that might be of interest to people, when you're making some larger project, at some point you do need to split up your modules. You <laughs> you can't have one big main.l. Yeah. I think there's basically two ways you can go about it at a high level. One is you you use a HTML.map, or because I'm using a, the Elm UI package, I use element.map. But mm -hmm. essentially, you, you, uh, you have a function that maps from your child's message type to the parent's message type with this uh, HTML.map function. The other approach is instead of having the child have its own message type, you give it a, um, you give it a record that contains, like every field is a possible message that can be sent back. Mm -hmm. And so the parent constructs this record type and the child can use that for like, like, hey, I want to download the file then. I'll check this download file field in this record, and it gives me this function I can use. So I'll use that. And yes. then, because then now your types, your parent uses the same type that your um, child does. So you don't have to use HTML map anymore. Right. And that's what I primarily went with uh, for my ah, games. A lot okay. of these uh, records that contained like, 
uh, the parents' messages that it uses. Mm. So that the the child uh, element, the the child component, can also use those. I like that insight, though. You know, there are a couple of talks by uh, Richard Feldman and Evan Chaplicki showing um, how LMAPs evolve as they grow larger and they talk about the different patterns for breaking things down. But I've never quite thought of it uh, the way you just described, which is that you, you, um, you can create modularity in the data of your application, which is that, that first thing you said where, you know, if you've got a, a, a simple data type that has its own functions for working with it, those things quite naturally go into a separate module. But then there's this separate thing you're do, you can do in the UI of an application of, of uh, saying um, this is a, a piece of sub-UI and it doesn't necessarily have to have its own message type. Uh, it can it can have it or it can be given messages by uh, the parent and it's it's I think people jump very quickly to the own message type and maybe that is one of the most common examples of people overcomplicating their architecture uh, too early in an LMAP. Yeah, and I can definitely recommend that I even this like strategy I used I in general try to avoid componentization however you pronounce that, um, yeah. because it does like just inherently complicate the program. And so I'm, mm. I'm doing it when I see this is like a very clear break in yes. the application. And if I didn't do this, it would become one very large main file instead. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask about the music that you put in the game. You credit a couple of uh, artists uh, for the intro music and the gameplay music. Credit to both of them. It's like, I really love their music. Meganika, who made the in-game music, uh, I actually, like, I emailed them and said, hey, uh, I want to use their, your song in my game. And they're like, yeah, sure. Uh, cool game. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, credit to them. Thank you for the permission. Um, uh, with the intro song, I was never able to get contact with the person, um, uh, uh, Lane Volta. I wrote, I wrote their name down, Lane Volta, yeah. Yeah, Lane Volta. Uh, they also, they, they run a band called She Music. Uh, which they're probably better known under that name. Uh, and I love their music, fantastic music. Uh, sadly, I could not like get in contact with them. I sent two emails, no response. You know, fair yeah. enough. The person has like a bajillion Twitter, Twitter followers. <laughs> they get a lot of messages, <laughs> I imagine. So yes. that's a bit of a more of a gray area, I suppose. If they ever speak up and say, hey, don't use that song, then like, fair enough, I'll take it away. Like you said, those, those tracks are so good that I feel like... Um, if if simply unlocking more background music was the reward for progressing through the game, that would be enough to pull me through it. Okay, yeah. I, I did have a thought of like, ooh, what if you had a little like playlist and you could like pick a different song at the start of a mission? Uh, yeah. Um, or, or even just, you know, like, I imagine people have their own ideas of what would be good gameplay music. So I could just let people link YouTube songs or something. Um, the, the feature scope stopped there. So that never got included. <laughs> got it. <laughs> so that, that was picking the music. But on a more technical side, so as you probably know, Elm doesn't have like an official way of playing audio. You, mm. you can, of course, use audio tags. Uh, HTML just has, or HTML5 has uh, audio tags that you can right. use. But they're not really intended for like uh, very, like, say, high precision, like playing mm. a sound effect exactly now and stopping it exactly at this point. Say if you had a game mechanic that was do something in time with the music. 
the gameplay music that you're supposed to be in time with, um, it's sort of a cheat in that the music has a definite beat, but you don't have to follow it exactly. You actually have a lot of leeway in when you want to move. Like, there's a, like, you, you have, when you're on a chip, there's like a half a second long interval. And in that interval, 50% of the time, you have like a 50% long window of that time where you can yeah. move. Um, but if you move like right at the start of that or right at the end of that, that's okay. And that won't keep you in time with the music. You'll, you'll drift out of sync with the music. But <laughs> like my hope is, or my gamble is that people will naturally follow with the music. And so they yeah. will keep time with the music. I don't think you're that far off the state of the art on this stuff. I've played other kind of rhythm action games like Crypt of the Necrodancer. And I get the sense, although it isn't spelled out in UI on the screen, the feeling I get of how forgiving it is, it feels very much like exactly the same mechanic. Okay, yeah, that, that's the hope. Uh, I should add, though, first off, yes, Crypt of the Nec Necrodancer, that was a lot of inspiration came from there. In fact, in the early development of the game, um, the chip movement, um, instead of the, like, instead of your character moving the instant you hit a, a direction key, uh, yeah. it would wait until, like, the, 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 the interval for the chip had ended and then use your input. And that felt terrible. It felt like there was some horrible input lag. Uh, <laughs> and so I actually, <laughs> uh, I got, I started playing Crypto Necrodancer and just like filming the screen and watching my inputs and like, just how did they do it? Yeah. How did they do it? Like, yeah, oh, yeah. they always moved the character and everything else the instant you hit the key. And that uh -huh. was, that was like a big breakthrough then. But like, yes, yeah, so a lot of inspiration came from that game. But yeah. there is a fundamental difference between uh, Circuit Breaker and Necrodancer in that in Necrodancer, if you move a little early, it'll forgive you. But if you like move a little early again, like relative to your first early input, now you've drifted too far and it'll count oh. that as like a mistiming. In so Circuit Breaker, if you move early, yeah, it re in Circuit Breaker reset. So if you move early and you move early again and again and again, that's fine. It won't care. So you are like completely drifted off the course of the music at that point. You can get in more beats per second than the song would allow you to. Gotcha. And I did that because the issue is that when you're racing around on these wires, you're not following the beats. Suddenly you get to a chip and now you have to yes. like line yourself up with the chip's timing. And if you're like, like, you know, matching the beat, but you're like, you have an offset Yep. then you, you feel like you're doing it right, but you're just missing every, you're missing every interval, and it feels mm -hmm. horrible. So yep. I, I had to make it more forgiving. So I imagine there are more than a few people listening who have in their minds their, uh, their game that they want to maybe use Elm to build. Uh, what's your advice to people in that position? What things did you use that worked out well? Are, do, are there any thank yous you want to send out to the people who built those things? Yeah, um, yeah, I'll start with thank yous. Um, so for building this project, um, of course, I had a lot of packages I used. So just like a general thanks to all the mm. people who make packages, like the high quality Elm packages out there. Uh, especially thanks to uh, Matthew Griffith for Elm UI, which not even just game development, like <laughs> are you making something in Elm? Use Elm UI. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like a great tool for making, um, yeah, uh, views and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and then... Uh, more game-focused uh, Elm Geometry by uh, Ian McKenzie is like, that was extremely useful for this project. 
Uh, sadly, I'm using version one of the package. So there's a version three now, which has coordinate uh -huh. systems, and that would have been great to have from the beginning. But, well, <laughs> you know, I don't want to wait a year. <laughs> yep. So, uh, and then, uh, not, not helpful to anyone else, but thanks to my sister for, um, you know, playtesting and help, like, iterate and, like, figure out what works or not in my game. We've been calling her your sister this whole time. What's her name? Yes. <laughs> Thea is her name. Thea Stewart. Thea Stewart. Uh, the inspiration for Circuit Breaker. Yes. Yes, the inspiration, the, the motivation. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this deep dive into Circuit Breaker. Martin, I couldn't have asked for a better behind the scenes. That was really fascinating. Uh, I now really, really want to clear the rest of those, uh, those 16 initial levels and, uh, and maybe even develop a custom color scheme. Yeah, it, well, if you make a color, custom color scheme, you're welcome to uh, uh, the Game Dev channel or in the show notes or what have you. Yes. Speaking of the Game Dev channel, is that someplace that, like, were you hanging out there getting advice from the other Game Dev uh, folks in the Elm ecosystem? Or was this something you were mostly toiling on uh, in obscurity? Like I mentioned, with not getting uh, feedback on the game, except for my sister, yeah. uh, until like two months before release, Essentially, the same thing happened with the Game Dev channel. I was just lurking there, watching other people uh -huh. make their stuff. And in hindsight, you know, like it would have been better to like be, uh, say, more open, more like <laughs> start showing stuff from the beginning, even when it's not like you know nice and polished yet. Yeah, I don't know. I did very much have that feel. Like the announcement was kind of like, here's something I've been working on in secret, and it's finally ready for you all to see it. Like that is the sense. Especially once I once I clicked through and I saw how how polished it was. It was like, oh, this isn't a first prototype that you're looking for feedback on towards an eventual game. This is a finished game, and uh, just as you gave a version to your sister for her birthday. It's kind of like you gave this to the Elm community for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it was a couple of days before Christmas, so it works out. Um, well, there you go. Yeah. On, on behalf of the rest of uh, Elm Town, thank you for our lovely Christmas gift. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> All right, well, um, if people want to catch up with you, what's the best way to reach out? Uh, I'm very active on Slack, um, but you're welcome mm -hmm. to, like, private message me on Discourse as well. Okay. Uh, those are like the primary two ways of reaching out to me. If, if you find bugs with the game, the, the source code is available. Uh, I, I suppose maybe in the, the uh, show notes, but also if you go to the settings in the game, there's a link to the source code and you can uh, file issues there if you find any bugs. Excellent. And uh, like I said, right back at the start, this is the first episode of the new year, but I'm, I am ready and raring to record some more. So if you know of someone doing something cool in the Elm ecosystem and you want to put them forward, or if you happen to want to come on and talk about the thing that you've been building, feel free to reach out to me. You can find me at Sentience on Twitter or I am on the Elm Slack and the Elm Discourse as well as Kevin Yank. You can find me in both those places. I'm looking forward to hearing from you, but the reason I suggested that you, you shout out someone else who's done something cool is so often in this world, we don't think that, that the things that we've done ourselves are that special and worth talking about, and it's much easier to see something someone else has done 
and put them forward. So uh, that's my ask of you, dear listener. If you value Elmtown and you want to see more of it, keep an eye out for something cool that you would like uh, to to have featured on a future episode and, and put that person forward. They're, they're probably a little too shy to do it themselves. So thanks again, Martin, for joining us. And thank you, listener, for joining us in Elmtown. I'm Kevin Yank. Bye for now.